welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 6 and Episode 8. And we've entitled it, Jesus Divides Opinion. We're in John chapter 6 and we're going to be studying verses 60 to 71, which is the conclusion of a long discussion that Jesus has with a big crowd crammed into the synagogue in his home base town, Capernaum, um, after the feeding of the 5,000 and a return to Capernaum from the area of Bethsaida where that great miracle took place. Uh, so just to give a little bit of context here, for those who may not have been following the episodes uh, that immediately come before this one, the big story here in, in series six is that Jesus is traveling around uh, Galilee with his apostles. He sent them out uh, in pairs to places that he can't get to, to extend his ministry. And there's just been a very remarkable miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Now we looked at the actual miracle in one of our episodes. And in the last episode, we looked at the fact that that particular miracle provoked a very significant discussion. So just to remind you a little bit of that story, which provides the background and the explanation of this discussion we're going to talk about today, uh, just to say something about that. So some of the crowd uh, on the mountainside near Bethsaida in the northeast um, of the Sea of Galilee uh, noticed Jesus had come back by boat. They didn't see exactly how it happened because it happened in the night. And they came back to Capernaum to look for him. We have to bear in mind that uh, large crowds were traveling with Jesus most of the time. And this particular miracle had had an enormous impact on people. Never before had such a large uh, crowd been recorded as being with him. Many thousands of people, we can calculate possibly up to 10,000 people in total if there's 5,000 men and some women and children as well. And Jesus had fed them miraculously through the five loaves and the two fish in the way that's uh, been described in the episode uh, where we covered the actual event. Some of the crowd wanted to follow Jesus, they wanted to engage with him further because this felt to them like a very significant moment. And indeed, some people felt that Jesus was giving through this miracle a sign uh, of his political ambitions as well, just his power over people, power over the natural world, power to provide um, that he'd be some kind of a, a king or a ruler amongst them. This was a mistake, but it's something that they felt. And so a number of the crowd followed Jesus back to Capernaum and gathered in the synagogue and engaged in a discussion with him, quite a substantial discussion, where Jesus uh, tried to explain to them the deeper significance of his miracle of feeding the 5,000. Now, obviously, uh, it was a miracle of compassion. It was a prophetic miracle. It was uh, a miracle that served an immediate need. It was a, a miracle that uh, indicated his concern for the poor and the needy and God's ability to provide and multiply. All those things were true. But what was going on at a deeper level? Were people there just to spectate um, or were they going to become followers of Jesus? And if so, what did that mean? So in the last episode, Jesus uh, leads them through a subtle and complex discussion where he's using metaphorical language to describe who he is. And the principal image he uses 
is that he is the bread of life. So the physical bread that he broke on the side of uh, the mountain for the 5,000 uh, is just uh, an outward sign of some deeper reality. And Jesus describes himself as the bread of life uh, in this discussion he had with the crowd in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, the discussion was tense and complex. People were unclear about what Jesus was exactly saying. Uh, there were some claims to divinity, to being closely connected to God the Father, of having come from the Father, that they found difficult. Some people said, well, surely this is just the, the young lad from, from Nazareth. We know the family. How can he have any divine status? So all that discussion has gone on in the last episode. And it was quite a tense discussion because Jesus was pointing out that his claims were much deeper than just the claim to be able to perform miracles. He was actually calling upon people's loyalty to believe in him and to trust in him and to find the meaning of their life through his mission, through his kingdom, through his death, through his resurrection, through the forgiveness that he provides to those who believe in him. And people were confused and divided in their opinion. That's the immediate context for uh, this particular discussion. John has already pointed out that at the very end of the feeding of the 5,000, such was the euphoria and the excitement of many in the crowd that they actually wanted to make him uh, a ruler at that particular point. Uh, so I'll just read again what John says. We've mentioned this in earlier episodes, but it's worth repeating here. John 6, 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they wanted to come and make him a king by force. So there was a... Tremendous move to think Jesus is more than just some healer. He really is uh, going to be a ruler over us. They wanted him to be a military leader, a political leader. And they wanted to, first of all, overthrow the king in that region, the ruler in that region, who's called Herod Antipas. We've come across him uh, on many occasions, not least recently when he is stated as having uh, executed John the Baptist. But they, the crowd also really wanted to over, overthrow the whole Roman Empire, the whole Roman establishment behind Herod Antipas, and maybe wanted Jesus to reclaim Jerusalem, reclaim the temple, reclaim the Jewish faith, reclaim uh, the Jewish land for Jewish control, and get rid of all the foreign rulers in the country. But Jesus did not want to go down that road, did not accept that they wanted to make him king. And in this moment of extreme popularity, he disappeared out of the crowd and went up the side of a mountain to pray on his own. So that had all happened uh, just prior to the events that we are talking about. So the question that Jesus provoked the people to discuss in the last episode was essentially, what is a true disciple? Jesus used that terminology. A disciple is a follower, a learner, someone who has submitted themselves to 
the teaching and the leadership of another person. So a disciple is a representation of a significant relationship and commitment to the message and the person. Jewish rabbis in those days had their own groups of disciples and followers, and they were all over the country. You could sometimes see them walking together, talking together, studying together, working together. And the question here is, are the people who have so far followed Jesus, are they really, truly disciples? There are three categories of people that are involved in this story. There's the 12, the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. There's the other full believers in Jesus who are in the crowd. And there are some who are just casual followers of him and really want him to take a political role and to turn his miracles against the Romans and against their under rulers like Herod Antipas in Galilee. So Jesus really confronts the issues that have arisen in this discussion in the passage that we are now going to study. So we're going to look at John 6 verses 60 to 66. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Some of them felt that Jesus' teaching was what's described in verse 60, a hard teaching. Here's an example of that hard teaching from the previous passage. Chapter 6, verse 53. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is metaphorical teaching. It's imagery, but it's really graphic. What on earth does that mean? It was kind of an offensive language to them. What Jesus is basically saying is that as you believe, it's like the act of eating and drinking. It's a participation. It's a connecting together. It's a metaphorical phrase, but it offended some people. And they were offended by the idea in this teaching in the previous passage of suffering, that Jesus was going to suffer and his death was going to bring life and his blood needed to be shed and they needed to metaphorically drink his blood. All this was very offensive to people. And so we see what happens here is that people are now beginning to decide which way are they going to go. They've been in the crowd up till now. But are they going to continue being in the crowd that follows Jesus? Well, I think not from what, it, what takes place here. What Jesus does in confronting his skeptics here is that he promises that he is going to ascend to heaven again. Verse 62. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? 
So he adds another dimension to his teaching. He's spoken about suffering and dying and about resurrection. But now here he speaks about ascension. And he says, essentially, I came from heaven, which a point which he's made in the previous passage, and I'm going to return to heaven. What would it be if you actually saw me return to heaven? Would you suddenly realize who I am if you saw me return to heaven? Well, the interesting thing is, that's exactly what happened to the 12 apostles minus one, the 11 who were left when uh, Jesus rose again from the dead. Because one day after he had been with them and several weeks after his resurrection, uh, according to Acts 1 verse uh, 9 to 11, after Jesus had concluded his teachings to the apostles, it said, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So it actually turns out that the apostles saw the ascension of Jesus. They saw him disappearing physically. And the cloud we can understand to be a representation of the glory of God, which often appeared like a cloud. And the two men dressed in white we can take to be angels. So miraculously, Jesus does return to the right hand of his father in heaven. That is a reality. It's uh, promised prophetically here in John 6. It actually takes place in Acts 1. And it helps the apostles to see who Jesus really is and not just to think about his role on the earth and particularly the complex issue of his suffering, his death and his resurrection. He promised his ascension. And he said the true disciples will persevere in faith because of the call of the Father and the help of the Holy Spirit. Now the conclusion, sadly, in verse 66 from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This point, which John identifies so clearly in the narrative of Jesus, is probably the moment when he has just got past his maximum popularity. I would identify his maximum popularity as being represented by the feeding of the 5,000 and the adulation and acclamation that came uh, at that point and their desire to make him king. But this happens immediately afterwards, roughly the next day, that they're gathered in the synagogue and they turn back and no longer followed him. So this will be a trend that we will see now. Jesus still has a vast number of people in the crowds, but there are people who have uh, become disillusioned with him because he's not going to fulfill their political and their economic ambitions. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that the Jewish people to whom Jesus was ministering were people who lived under the rulership of an occupying power, the Romans, who'd been there many years by the time uh, that Jesus came. And they had their puppet rulers like Herod Antipas and others in different parts of the country. So they longed to be free. And they interpreted the Old Testament in such a way that the Messiah was going to have a political role to overcome all the enemies of the Jewish people. 
Now, they were half right in this because actually many of the Old Testament prophecies do point in the direction of a conquering king, a ruling messiah, um, who would rule over the world in a kind of messianic age. That is actually an accurate representation of the Old Testament prophets, but it's only part of their message. And this part of Jesus' ministry was not going to be uh, taking place at this stage. It was going to be at his second coming, not at his first coming. So many disciples turned away from Jesus at this point. This reminds us of the fact that it is important for Christians to understand that people who appear to be following Jesus are often not doing so um, wholeheartedly. And they can change and can leave the, the church community and they can leave the um, path of discipleship and they can return back to their old ways very easily. Now, this was represented very decisively by Jesus' parable of the sower, where the different kinds of seed were sowed by the farmer onto good soil, uh, stony soil, soil with many weeds in it and onto the path and there were a number of different outcomes and, and that was a representation of the fruitfulness of individual lives in the kingdom of God. And so just to remind you and connect it with this, you know, why are these people stepping back? Well, maybe uh, we have an answer in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13 verse 20, when Jesus interprets the parable, he said, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And then the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So here are two vivid examples of people who are saying yes to the message initially, but then we find out that they are either just purely nominal or that they are distracted. And we don't know exactly which category the people fell into that are being described here in John 6. But we can imagine many of them were purely nominal. They followed Jesus in name only, but not from the depths of their heart. And so this is a rather sad moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. A division is taking place. And Jesus then presses on and talks directly to his uh, disciples in the remaining verses. Verse 67 to 71. Do you want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Jesus here provokes people to the disciples to reaffirm their faith, which Peter does very strongly, saying he doesn't want to go anywhere. How can he go anywhere else? Because Jesus has the words of eternal life. Then he reminds them that the twelve are chosen by him. Now that choice was represented 
Um, after a night of prayer recorded in Mark 3 and uh, Luke chapter 6, when Jesus called a wide group of disciples to him and he picked out 12 and he said, I have chosen you. And the choice was uh, in Mark 3 verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So to be with him and then to have his authority to preach and overcome the powers of darkness. They have been called. But he points out here that one of those 12 didn't truly believe and take on his calling and take on the message. And so then becomes a false disciple. And that is Judas Iscariot. This is the first negative reference to Judas Iscariot in the Gospels. So we're going to just be mindful of that, um, but pick up the story later on where certain things happen which reveal the character and outlook of Judas Iscariot, his selfishness and his ultimate unbelief in the calling that he's been given and the faith that he has been offered. So as we conclude our episode and we conclude uh, two episodes together where we've looked at John chapter 6 which is a long and complex passage. What conclusions and reflections can we draw? This is a key moment of choice. Jesus's popularity cannot be guaranteed from now onwards. People who follow him will have to do so much more out of conviction. This, of course, is something that many of us understand only too well, because in our countries, in different parts of the world, to be a Christian is not always popular. Sometimes it's extremely unpopular and difficult to be a follower of Jesus. Now, the disciples are moving towards a time of increasing conflict and difficulty where they're going to face opposition. But... The true nature of discipleship is revealed in this passage. Discipleship is based on the utter conviction that there is no other way of life worth living except following Jesus. I think that would represent how I feel about discipleship. And it's represented here by Peter in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So discipleship is based on utter conviction about truth, spiritual truth, utter conviction about the identity of Jesus and utter conviction about what he brings to our lives and a willingness in the short term for a difficult life in order to pursue a great calling. Discipleship embraces the two different parts of Jesus' calling. This is what the wider group of people in conversation with Jesus had really struggled to embrace. They were very happy with the fact if he was the Jewish Messiah, he was going to be some kind of a political and spiritual leader in the nation and basically get rid of all their problems, get rid of foreign rulers, get rid of the Romans, get rid of all their underlings and all the corruption in the country. They were very happy with that, but they were not happy with the ex 
explicit teaching of Jesus that the first thing that Jesus the Messiah must do is to suffer and to die and then to rise again from the dead. This really didn't appeal to the crowds at all and is the reason why they began to drift away and there was division at this point. A true disciple of Jesus will fully embrace the fact that during his earthly life, his mission primarily was to launch the kingdom of God into a hostile world and to create a kingdom community, the church, the community of faith, through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And that his death achieved a new covenant, achieved atonement, forgiveness, and he offers that forgiveness for sins to anyone who believes. So a true disciple will be rooted in those realities and think that is the basis of my life. But a true disciple will also anticipate Jesus returning again in glory and power at the second coming, bringing physical resurrection, bringing judgment of his enemies and bringing a messianic age or the kingdom of God into fulfillment. What's starting now will reach its full measure at the coming of Christ. That's what Christian disciples believe and we have to have a good engagement with both the comings of Jesus and what they represent in order to live a mature Christian life and to hold steady in difficult times. The story of the New Testament is largely a story of difficult times. Jesus had difficult times ending in great suffering. The early church had many difficult times as it grew quickly with great power but it didn't enjoy entire popularity. Opposition came very quickly. And so a characteristic voice from the letters uh, describing the common experience of Christians is probably the book of James. And I want to just end this talk by linking what we've said now with James's comments at the beginning of chapter 1, verses 2 uh, to 4. Uh, because they describe uh, the normal Christian life, as we might say. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And the trials he had in mind certainly included economic problems, um, a persecution, uh, challenging personal situations, which was the background of the people that he was writing to. But this is a common situation. And so this passage in John 6 describes a moment of division when people were really counting the cost. Did they want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly or did they want the benefits of his ministry and the possibility that he might just solve their problems? This issue remains vivid today because if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to really embrace uh, the wider significance of his message and the fact that it can be a costly journey. But you embrace it because you know it's worth it. The end destination is phenomenal. Eternal life, resurrection. And along the way, Jesus' 
the bread of life, as it says in John 6 and verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So as we go along the complex journey of Christian discipleship, we know that we have an inner satisfaction that we're doing the right thing. We're at peace with God. We're forgiven. There's purpose in our lives. We also know that the the final destiny is guaranteed and that the uh, next life, eternal life and resurrection life, the new heaven, the new earth, is a wonderful, wonderful world that uh, we will inherit in days to come. And all we must do is draw more people in to God's kingdom. So this great choice is what this passage is about. Jesus divides opinion and he's still dividing opinion today. I'm encouraging you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to underline and confirm your commitment to him wholeheartedly today. And I'm encouraging you, if you're inquiring about Christian faith, to pursue the journey and to see who Jesus is and to join those who decided to follow him as disciples. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.